This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we've got an interview with the New York Times CEO, Meredith Copet Levian. She's a fast rising star. has been on at the Times for a few years now. Started as COO. Uh, you remember that we also talked to her predecessor, Mark Thompson, as part of his exit tour last fall. A couple programming notes. I interviewed Levian as part of a conference hosted by Digital Content Next. That's a trade group of digital publishers. That includes my employer, Vox Media. And you will hear me asking Levian some questions sent to her by other digital publishing execs at the end of our chat. More important is the fact that I taped this interview with Levian around noon on Friday, February 5th. And that is relevant because at the end of that day, the Times announced that Don McNeil Jr., who had been the Times star pandemic reporter, and Andy Mills, who had been an important part of the company's podcast group, were both leaving the paper. Those departures are preceded in part by loud and sustained complaints about the men from New York Times staff on Slack and on Twitter, which is something that happens quite often now at the Times or... or Frequently at the Times. How about that? Um, and so I was talking to Levian about McNeil and the particulars around his case. Uh, I obviously would have asked her different questions if he'd announced that he was leaving. I don't know that I would have got different answers, frankly. She's fairly cautious when it comes to talking about personnel, but um, I wish I would have had the chance to ask those questions. But there you go. Okay, here is my interview with Meredith Kopip. Levian. Hi, Meredith. Peter. Thanks, Jason. Thank it's you, nice Jason. to be here. Yeah, it's better in Miami, as we all say. Um, so, Meredith, you had gangbuster earnings yesterday. You guys have had a series of those. Um, your stock went up. It did not get to GameStop levels. It came back down. I think you need a Reddit strategy. But it, it's helpful for me because you guys sketched out a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you about. Um, some top-line numbers, you guys said 6.7 million digital subs all in. You've talked about hitting 10 million in 2025. You're well on your way. Um, and you you threw out yesterday the notion that you think there's a hundred million um, people around the world that want to pay to read news, digital news in English. So once you get to your 10 million, which will come sooner than later, what's the next reasonable milestone for you guys? What are you looking at? Yeah, um, that's a good, great question. I'll just say it's nice to see everyone. This is one of my favorite gatherings um, every year. So thanks again, Jason, for for having me. Um, let me let me actually step back and and just talk a little bit about the hundred million as the addressable market um, for the Times, and I think for probably many others in this room. Um, I also said yesterday there's something like a billion people who read digital news. So I think a hundred million as a you know potential audience of people who will pay for it in English 
it's probably a conservative number. Um, the market today, from what we can tell of people who, who pay for English language digital news, it's probably 80 million. And, and that roughly divides half in the United States and, and half beyond it. So I'd say it isn't hard to imagine the times, you know, at, at seven and a half million total subscriptions today, having a market share that's, you know, two, three, even, even four times that over time. And I'd say with plenty of other room, if you assume 100, at least 100 million, plenty of other room for other quality independent journalism outlets to survive and to, and to thrive in that. You, you got ahead of me on the is the is the New York Times going to swamp everyone else in the news business question. But, you know, Netflix for years as they were growing their business and they were often they're pitting themselves against HBO. They would take pains to say, you know, just because we're growing doesn't mean it's at HBO's expense. A lot of our subscribers are also subscribing to HBO. Um, and now there are many more people going after that same market. What percent of, of Times subscribers are subscribing to another news product? That's a, a really good question. I expect we have a fair number of people who subscribe to multiple products. One of the things we don't do is journalism at the local level outside of our, our home market. Um, so I think there, there are plenty of people who still subscribe to a local news organization. There are plenty of people who still subscribe to something that's in a, in a special interest in business or sports or, or otherwise, and I'll just, I'll pick up on, on what you're saying and point to Disney, which came many years after Netflix and, and because the quality and frankly, the specificity of their product and the, the sort of um, specificity of, of who their brand is for has been able to grow and put up, I think, a, you know, historic, you know, first, first, I guess, year um, in, in the streaming business, even while Netflix also put up a, a historic year. But, and the HBO Max numbers are nothing to sneeze at either. Right, but our, our time is infinite. Our, most of our bank accounts are, are, are yeah. finite. Um, when someone is subscribing to the Times, do you think they are moving money away from another news product? Do you think it's most often a new, they're new to paying for news? And do you think they're thinking about this as, this is my news subscription versus my Spotify, versus my HBO, versus my Netflix, or is it all just one big pool of discretionary subscription spending? I think it looks more, I mean, I listen, I don't, I don't have a perfect answer and we're thinking as hard about this as the question you're, you're asking me, but I do think it looks more like the second thing you said then then the first which is i'm going to subscribe to a number of services that you know help me in, in our case understand the world and and potentially live a, a more fulfilling life i think amazon prime is a great example of i subscribe for a number of reasons i subscribe so you know i can get my uh, paper towels faster and i subscribe so i can read my son the, the right books at night um, and, and so I would think of it more, more the same way. Let, let me say one more thing, though, because I think you're really poking at how do, we think, how, how do we think about the market and what does it mean for others? I actually think we're still, it's part of why I say a billion readers of digital news, much more willingness to pay in the world, at least 100 million people who will pay. That's us trying to narrate how big an opportunity we have. But I think it's kind of a big opportunity 
generally. And I, I do think those forces um, are sort of good, good for everyone. I'll add to it that we're still in the early days of this, right? The pay model actually turns 10 years old, the pay model for the New York Times this quarter. And I would argue we are still making a market for paid digital news subscription. It wasn't that long ago that, you know, everybody said things like digital news wants to be free. Yep. So, you know, we're, we're still in the formative stages and, and we look, you know, my, my guess is some of our, our journalistic competitors, like my, I think um, News Corps reported yesterday and they had a great year for subscriptions. My understanding is the Post had a great year for subscriptions. And we sort of look at all of that as making a market. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of, of what you've learned about running a subscription business? You talked uh, yesterday about, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a good job of getting people to sh sign up with cheap subscriptions, graduating them to full price subscriptions. I think you just announced you're going to have your first, uh, you are raising prices for subscribers for the first time. So mechanically, what have you learned about sort of when to, when to bring the paywall up, when to ask people to pay, um, when to graduate them to a full price subscription? Yeah. Um, great, great question. Um, two sort of underlying principles, I would say, are like lessons that, that kind of keep repeating. Number one, you have to keep investing in the content itself and sure. the quality. And so the let's take that as a given that it has to be good. Take that as a given. It's got to be great. You need a really big audience funnel of deeply engaged people. And I'm, you know, I'm very focused right now on the fact that, um, we like broke every record that I know of in terms of audience and engagement this year, something like one in two Americans came to the times, um, you know, in peak COVID and in, in the first half of, of the year, one in two adult Americans while we were still selling a lot of subscriptions. So for us, a big part of the formula has been, you need a wide amount of really high quality journalism accessible to a lot of people um, actually for much of the first half, I won't remember the dates, but for much of the first half, we had everything about COVID on our site outside of the paywall and still managed to, to sell a lot of subscriptions. So, you know, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying friction isn't the only answer and, you know, sort of use friction um, in a really thoughtful and deliberate way, recognizing that it's going to take people time and energy to engage. I'll say one other thing that, um, that's been a big learning of late, and that is that if we can get you to make a direct relationship with us, which is like, just give us your email address, mm -hmm. get you to give us your email address, we've got a long window of time to get you to engage with something on the New York Times. Maybe it's downloading the app or signing up for a newsletter or signing up for, you know, any number of, of alerts. But we, we've got a number of bites at the Apple at getting you to engage. And, and I would say that is probably the case for any subscription business. Can you quantify how much better you've gotten at conversion? You know, you get a bigger data set every year, you get more and more people, you get more training, you get better AI or whatever you're using to, to figure this out. Um, can you tell me that your conversion rate's gone up X percent year over year? What I would say is we like, I'm not, I'm not gonna give you a number, but I'll tell you that on a much larger base of people, we're, we're kind of pleasantly surprised with what we've been able to do with conversion. Same on churn. I mean, I will quantify on churn and say, um, when I got to the Times, when, when I came over to the subscription business five years ago, our churn was, was not 
something to be proud of. And, and we did a lot of work, you know, across, across a few years to bring it down at a level um, that, you know, I think some of the, the more well-known entertain, you know, like at a level that, you know, maybe a, a Netflix has. Um, so in, in that range, and we've been able to hold that despite the base growing so much larger. And I'd say, Similarly, on conversion, we like what we see even with, with a much bigger audience. And the formula is just really having a lot of understanding about what do people engage with, why do they engage, and how. You guys still have an ad business, even though you've moved to subscription first. Um, that's in decline, both print and digital. Um, you turned off your open programmatic ads last year and said, this is a move we want to make. We know it's going to cost us up front. And yesterday said this did cost us. Do you imagine at some point that you are going to be able to replace that with apples for apples display ads that you sell yourself? And, and when will that happen? Um, we turned off open market programmatic advertising in our app. Um, and the idea was that in the app, we should have a really pristine experience and, you know, it should be getting more and more performative as we we go. And yes, there are two long games in that. The first and like most important long game is we think a much better experience for subscribers is going to ultimately be a bigger, better um, ad business. And, and the other thing we did in advertising in the last year is we really shifted the business back to this is a media business whose value is association with the brand in some instances, particular kinds of content. And then within that, you've got a really strong ability to target an audience of people with whom we have direct and deeply engaged relationships. And so we we started making our own first party data products. Um, they're all, I, I would describe them as privacy forward. We've got contextual products. We've got, um, you know, more, more specific demographic targeting uh, products and behavioral targeting products. And that is really working, makes, makes the ads work better. So over the long run, now advertising and subs are sort of powered by the same fuel and, and, and moving in the same direction. And as you grow subs and as you grow engaged audience, you can imagine a digital ad business that's growing. So, yeah, when do you think that the money that you took off the table um, gets replaced with, with digital ad dollars? Like, how long will that take you to, to get that back? It's a good question. Listen, we're coming off a really difficult year in advertising. I always say the best way to have a good year in advertising is to have a really bad one. <laughs> the year before I came up through the ad business, so that's sort of a widely known uh, fact. But I, I would think about it more. I do think um, everything I just described will get us to a better digital ad result. But more importantly, no open market, no auction in our app means we're going to have a more performative app and we're going to have more people deeply engaged in it, more subscribers. And over the long run, that's a better ad business. Too. Any any lessons you can impart for your peers here who are listening to this and are looking at, at Apple taking away its, its targeting capacity? Obviously, Facebook's unhappy about that. It's going to happen. And anything you can tell them about sort of how to compensate for the loss of that that data? I'll, I'll say two things. Um, number one, you got to do it in privacy forward ways. And we've had a lot of work to figure out, you know, where were we not doing it in a way that that we felt great about. And you can, I think you can control for user experience and privacy much more if you're using your own data. My guess is all the other publishers in this room, native TV companies have quite a bit of data. You, you know a lot about your users and there are plenty of privacy forward ways 
to use that data. The second thing I'll say is those ads perform at least as well, and in some cases better than those powered by third-party data. And so we are working really hard to wean ourselves off of using third-party data, which is less good for user experience, less good for privacy, less good economically. I could go on and on. So that would be my advice. You guys have 860 million. Did I get the right in, in cash on, on hand? It's a lot of cash. A lot of cash uh, and steadily increasing valuable stock that is, is getting more and more valuable. Um, what does M&A look like for you guys? In the past, you've, you've done relatively small things. I think Wirecutter was the biggest one at 30-ish million. Does that appetite increase in either the number of things you're looking to buying and, and the size? I would say um, we've got, you know, very big ambitions for the long-term opportunity that we see, as I as I described to you before, in terms of the market and our, our potential to mean a lot more to more people. And um, we would love to be able to use the balance sheet to drive um, some of our, you know, how we go again, go go about um, realizing that opportunity. So we're very open to it. Um, Wirecutter was, you know, relatively modest size acquisition. It's one we are incredibly excited about. That business has performed very well um, the whole time. So just just to say, like, yeah. if we, you know, we we also listen. We also did some M and A on my watch in the ad business that performed much less well. Which you um, shut down, right? Um, some of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. In 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 the marketing services space, it was a, actually you know good in the moment, not good sort of for the, the long term where where the business is is going. Wirecutter's been great, and we think now. I, I said yesterday on the call, you know, we're going to test the possibility of Wirecutter having a more direct role and place in our subscription business. We also acquired Serial Productions last year. We're super excited about the space you uh, you live in, Peter. You know, we think mm-hmm. um, we think audio is a really big opportunity for New York I've, Times. I've noticed. And, and well, let me say we acquired a little company that doesn't get much love in these conversations called Autumn, which is giving us this amazing lab to sort of experiment in all different kinds of audio forms and particularly read aloud and bundling with other publishers. So I would not, not rule out um, that that we um, do some MA. We haven't done it yet because we haven't found, you know, the, the clear shot at, at really adding to the strategy of journalism worth paying for through subscriptions. So you have a podcast business that is not it's it's it is is bigger than the daily, and you just hired two of my bosses uh, to help expand it. Why why do you think though that you haven't had another daily sized success over the last four years? Why haven't you been able to make another daily? People ask us that all the time. I probably ask, asked you that two years ago. Actually, people ask the team on the daily that all the time. Like you know, the daily is a magical thing. There are four million people who listen to it every day. Um, most of the people who listen are younger than the prior, you know, the audience for the digital New York Times, certainly than the print New York Times. It's totally wide in the audience. And the level of engagement is insane. It's like people spend, you know, 20, 25 minutes a, a day with us before coming to a digital property. So to me, that question is like, why haven't you made a new, another newspaper? yet. Um, And I I think putting in, you know, even more weight and energy into something that is a daily habit for that many people 
is just the right thing that we we should be doing. So I, you know, that that's a partial answer. My other answer is I'm really excited about the portfolio of podcasts we are building. And th- there's like a technical thing. So you you mentioned your two former bosses, you know, Kara Swisher's podcast Sway, um, which I think is awesome. She's been particularly on the news this this last run. You know, it isn't every day. It, the daily is every single day. <laughs> it is sort of on the news. It, it is going into a habit, an idea of a habit that people do every day. So I don't, you know, the, the, how many more things can be like that? Now, if you ask me the question, do I think audio in general and audio from the New York Times can play a much bigger role in, in people's lives and a much more, a bigger daily role. Absolutely, the number of times a day it's easier to listen to something than it is to watch it or read it is enormous. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Meredith Copet levian Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And we're back. I want to ask you another question about audio in a second, but first I want to remind the folks here that we're going to open it up to audience Q&A in a minute or so. So drop in your questions. They're usually better than mine. Don McNeil Jr., who a longtime science reporter for the Times, I don't think had much of a profile up until the pandemic and then became, I think, a real star in part based on his reporting and in part based on the Daily, came under fire last week after Daily Beast report. I'm not gonna, I don't need to resummarize the whole thing. But um, initially it seemed like Dean Bacay had, had sent out a memo saying, this is a problem, but I'm giving him a second chance. Your staff is unhappy about that to the point where you and H.G. Salzberger and Dean Bacay put out a note midweek this week saying, we hear you, we're going to do something. Um, What else can you do, given what we know about the situation? Yeah, um, I think that's I think that's a fair question. Um, I won't comment on the, the specifics of the personnel aspect of it. 
But but I will say, and, and the note that AG and, and Dean and I put out was, was meant to get at this, you know, this is happening in a moment where, um, you know, there's this bigger thing happening in the world, which is, um, and, and I think in most workplaces, which is just, you know, changing expectations from people about um, about how companies should work and about um, the, the, the strength and effectiveness of culture. And I, I think that's a real issue at many companies. I think that's a real issue at the New York Times. And I think we, you know, we have an opportunity. There, there's, there's like, you know, we've, we've been deep in, I've personally been deep in working on a long-term diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy for the Times. We're just getting ready to, to land that work. And, and part of that work um, was a really deep assessment of the place. And and one of the findings in in that assessment was that this is a a company where many of our systems and our processes and our operations are um, built to make sure the work is excellent. I think we also have an opportunity to make sure how we go about the work is excellent. And to me, that's that's culture. And, and I'll just say, you know, I talk about the, I said this yesterday on the earnings call, the last decade was about proving the strategy of journalism worth paying for. The next decade is about scaling it, really thinking about our culture and how it gets, you know, the, the best out of more of our people and how we interact with one another is a huge part of doing that well. Culture is a hard thing to, to talk about, and it's nebulous, and it's a sort of grand scale. This is a very specific thing. The reporting so far is that Don McNeil supposedly used the N-word in a, in a discussion about why words can be offensive. Is there a world where you can go, you shouldn't have done that. We're not happy about it. There's not much else we can say or do about it, and you're going to have a significant part of your workplace be very unhappy with that result. I think there's a world where two things are, are different and getting better at the times. And I'm going to say again, um, like my guess is a lot of companies find themselves in this position. The times it happening at the times tends to become more of a story. So we're not always doing it in, in, in the privacy of the company. One is, and you're, you're poking at this. I think there is an opportunity to communicate more and more effectively with everybody at the times, like all 5,000 people, when we don't have a full answer on something or when there's nuance or when there's, there's you know, when, when stuff is complicated. I, I, you know, this is a company I said before that's like about excellence in the work. And so I think there's an opportunity to be better at like saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's, here's what's happening as, as something goes. So, so that, that's one thing. And the second thing I would say is sort of another version of, of what I said before, which is more time, attention, and focus on the culture of the place and on how, you know, not just, listen, we are always going to be relentlessly focused on the excellence of the work, but I think we we have an opportunity to put even more into how we go about the work and that that will be a better experience for everybody who works at the Times. I'm, so the, you know, I'm talking passionately about yeah. this because this is like a huge part of what I've been thinking about, you know, for in my first six months. In so let's job. let's expand it a little bit. So you said, you know, a lot of companies have issues like this. It seems to me that the Times is very specific as well. It's obviously a high profile workplace. Um, it's full of journalists who like to talk and complain and talk to people like me. But there's been a series of these things. If we were doing this interview three weeks ago, I would have been asking you about Caliphate. 
Um, and X number of weeks ago, I was asking you about, I would have asked you about Barry Weiss or Tom Cotton. Is there something specific about the culture of the times and or even the way that people are communicating at the times on Slack or Twitter that, that, it, that you need to address specifically that is different than an insurance company or even another publisher? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair question. Two things come to mind. Um, one is, you know, people are really passionate. People who work at the New York Times are really passionate about the New York Times, right? So we we do an employee survey every year. The, the stunning thing that always comes back in that survey, however the company is doing overall, is that people are really, really, really engaged in the mission and passionate about it. Very, very high scores. This year, that was the case. And, and you know, it's, it's always the case. And I think when people are really passionate about something, they have very high expectations and they want to be a part of making sure it lives up to their expectations. And I think you're seeing that. And again, because of what we do for a living, listen, we, I, you know, we hold power to account for a living. So, you know, while it isn't always comfortable. I think we just have to live with the fact, some degree of the fact that, you know, we, um, we're going to have our, our employees saying, I don't like this. And, and, you know, I, I, I want this particular thing to be different at the same time, just like we say, nobody tells the times, um, editors what to write or what to publish or what angle to take. Um, we, we have to think very, very hard about communicating more effectively and about making sure we understand how people feel. And then also as a leadership team, you know, call what we think makes sense for the organization. Do you think you guys, I mean, the, the Times and Twitter and Twitter policies is sort of an ongoing story. Uh, Slack is certainly a new component. Do you think you guys might change the way that you ask your, your employees to use Slack or maybe not use Slack? Do you think you need to cut, uh, enforce some sort of standard of uh, Twitter behavior? Or do you think that the, the, that horse is long gone and it, it is what it is? Listen, I think that's the the, the first one is a, the first of your questions is, is a complicated question with, um, you know, like a multi-dimensional answer. What I'll say is, you know, the Ben Smith, Ben Smith wrote his uh, media column, I think this Monday um, about this. And I, I would say, read it. I think it's a sophisticated take on, on that issue. On, on the Slack issue, I'll go back to the thing I said earlier that a, a big part of culture is comms. It's not only comms, but it, it's how, how we communicate. And something, you know, I just told you our engagement scores at the times are always like off the charts high. People love the place even, or they feel passionate about the place. We, we have a lot of room to communicate better with one another. And so we've got, you know, since, since I came into this role, we've been building out and, and actually, you know, before that we saw a need for this, but we've been putting a lot of time and energy into how do we communicate? And we're just at the beginning of that, but, you know, we introduced a whole new set of Slack guidelines and and new ways for people, honestly, to be heard, <laughs> new ways for people to have more voice yeah. at the times. And I think that's as important as making sure that people treat one another well and like colleagues. Right. But the, the letting, giving people a voice is a double-edged sword, right? Because sometimes you don't like what they have to say, or more importantly, they, they, they may be using the platform in ways that just don't help anyone or help them, but not the rest of them. And I, I don't think there's an answer for it. Yeah. I don't think there's an answer either, either, but I can tell you, I think a really strong company 
is one in which people feel like there are outlets to have impact and have their voice heard. And there's also a set of values and principles that everybody widely understands. And there's not a lot of confusion when, when you know, something happens because they're, they're, it's set against those, those values. Okay. Um, I have more questions, but I want to open up to the audience, um, particularly anyone who doesn't work at the Financial Times, because I've got three different people from the Financial Times asking questions here. Um, I'll go with one of them here. Um, from Fiona Spooner, what's the main reason your digital customers cancel? Can you talk a little bit more about retention? Um, if I do, if I do unsubscribe, how do you get me back, and why? Why did I unsubscribe? Um, I mean, the shortest answer is because they don't engage in the product. And so all, you know, we, we spent years like working on the mechanics of cancellation and we're better at that. Still not perfect, but better. But now the real work is on, can we get you to engage? And I would say um, so much of that is in the first like hours and days of the relationship. Um, and so we, we spent an enormous amount of time to, trying to get people to, not, not enough yet, by the way, we're not good enough at this, but lots of people working on it. We get better every quarter. Can we get you to download the app? Can we get you to not just um, be, you know, get the morning, but to read the morning? Can we get you to sign up for news alerts? So it, it, can we get you to tell us what else you're interested in so that we, we can get our other newsletters to you? So really getting people to engage in the product is like 90% of the answer. There's one other insight for us that matters probably relevant to FT or, or anybody else, but that is like the more you engage across a range of topics and formats, the more likely you are to stay. So like breath really plays a role. Periodically, uh, fairly often, uh, I'll read that, that people are upset with the New York Times and they're either being encouraged to cancel their subscriptions or they're canceling their subscriptions because they're upset about something that you guys printed or did. Happens all the time now. What percent of, of cancellations do you think come from someone being upset about a Tom Cotton op-ed or whatever the issue is that given week? Yeah, let me let me say I hate to lose any subscriber, and our 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 chief growth officer hates to you know like we do not want to lose any subscriber, um, and it's especially painful when we lose them for you know because they're unhappy with something we did journalistically. But you know what? We're not going to change the journalism because of it. And the the sharp answer to your question is the number who go for editorial reasons is very very small in sort of comparison to the number of net additions um, we're, we're adding on a, you know, we're um, making on a quarterly Single basis. digits very, above? Very, very small. Very, single, very small. Single digits. Very, very small. You don't hear us talking about it. Again, I listen, yeah. I want to be clear. We hate to lose any yeah. subscriber. We're not going to change the journalism unless there's a place where we've actually made a mistake. But it is, you don't hear us talk about it in the call. You don't hear us talk about it in the business results because it, it's immaterial to the business results in terms of numbers. Uh, Joe Rosenfeld from News Corp congratulates you on your quarter and wants you to comment on your approach to the tech platforms, specifically their approach, their outreach efforts to support paid journalism. So uh, Facebook's paying you now directly. I assume Apple is as well. What else can you tell us about your relationship with the platforms? I mean, in general, we believe there should be fair value exchange between the platforms and the publishers whose very expensive and high quality work courses through through their systems and, and drives engagement for them. As you say, 
face our, our um, relationship with Facebook on Facebook news tab um, is a way that we did see fair value exchange. We're comfortable with that. I, I'd say um, the other thing that we like about the Facebook news tab, which is a, a signal of sort of how we see fair value exchange. Um, it's not a substitutional product. I don't have the sense that Facebook is trying to be, um, you know, you get that instead of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or, or the Washington Post. And so we are um, really interested in fair value exchange, not taking the form of substitutional products. I'll say one more beat, which is fair value exchange doesn't always have to be money. Um, you know, there are plenty of other ways that the platform's can and tech companies can, you know, can support journalism, including playing a role in, in our funnel. But um, I do think there has to be true fair value exchange. Do you expect that the like the Facebook project, the, the news tab, that's that's going to be an ongoing recurring thing? And you can assume that you're going to have that revenue and then step up year after year. And that's as you plot out your the next couple of years, that's something you can rely on. Or do you think that's a, you know, a move fast and break things? And actually, we're not going to do that anymore. Experiment. <laughs> um, it, listen, the terms we have um, are, are multi-year, but they're not forever. And I would say um, this was an important step in getting to fair value exchange with a platform. Um, I would not say um, it is a that we expect it to be sort of a central thesis in, in the long-term economics of the company. I think it's important um, and I think it's useful, but I, you know, it's, I, I would not say we're, we've been really clear that our strategy is digital, scaling digital subscriptions mm -hmm. and the businesses around it. I think fair value exchange in part comes from the value of what we do, um, but I would not say we expect it to be a huge part of the business going forward. Uh, Stieg Orskov, he's CEO of Denmark's JP, I'm going to butcher the name, I'm sorry, <laughs> JP Politikens, Hi, wants Steve. to ask, what part of your product development do you consider to be the most important in order to reach 10 million subscribers? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, the I would say what we've done really, I'm going to tell you what I think we've done well so far and what we really haven't. <laughs> what, we, what we've done well so far is sort of shipping um, digital product advancements, um, often in combination with the journalism, um, some on the, you know, the customer journey, the registration process I described before, that's gone pretty well. We have not, as we've done that, um, sufficiently built out the underlying tech platform to see that we can do that with ease and we can do that with ease across cooking and games and news and any other products that we, we you know, build into the portfolio. So for example, like we don't have a unified identity system. I could go on and on, but I would say um, we are most focused right now. And I think we'll be for the next few years, we're going to keep doing what I just described, but we've got a real, um, we've got real work to do to sort of address the Times having, you know, a sufficiently good underlying platform to be able to really scale subs across multiple different products. Great. Um, one last question for me, some degree of self-interest here. Uh, in your call yesterday, you talked about putting more money into the newsroom and you made it clear that as you guys grow, it's not like you're taking every dollar and hiring more journalists with it. You said, look, we're gonna, we are going to invest in specific areas we think are important in news coverage, but you didn't say what those are. So what are your priorities for news coverage? What do you wanna put more money into resource-wise? Yeah. 
I mean, first and most, and this is a broad statement, um, is we want to be able to cover the biggest stories of our time really expansively um, and and well. And, and I think this year was a great example of that um, on the COVID story, on the story of, um, you know, the reckoning around race and social justice, around, um, you know, this historic and bitterly contested election. So you can imagine us always investing to make sure on the very big topics, and they over time change, but on the very big topics, we are really able to cover them in a giant and continuous way and across formats. So, you know, the the COVID case tracker has been one of the most important um, parts of the times in, in 2020 and the ability to understand like down to the level of the county you live in mm-hmm. um, where, you know, how, how the virus is spreading and, and what the, the staff. But those are, like. those are things where you sort of had an existing staff and said, all right, let's, let's put them on this. Let's put them on this project. When you're looking ahead and saying we yeah. want to cover certain stuff. Someone told me they talked to A.G. Salzberger, uh, publisher and, and he said my the big the big issues I want us to cover are in the environment uh, the growth of authoritarianism and totalitarianism across the world and technology and sort of that's where our effort should go does that sound right to you in terms of where you want to spend money I think those are part of it and um, so certainly that that that's a more specific answer to my question let me let me give the other part of the answer which is where I was going with the COVID case tracker I think um, there's a lot more to come for the New York Times and probably my other you know, publishing colleagues in this room that goes beyond like an 800 word article. Right. So the, the, a really big focus this last year at the Times has been trying to get better at live and developing news so that you can come to the Times as something is happening with like. 270 million people on the Times um, during election week because there was this complete experience that wasn't just articles, but, you know, a whole um, set of things to help you understand the elections as they were unfolding. It was the case for Georgia, too. So so more in live, more in data journalism and more more visual. The Times is, is you know, just kind of coming into its own as a place um, still, it, you know, have plenty, plenty more ahead of us as a place to sort of see something unfolding. We're really good at doing that retrospectively, yep. um, but but there's more to go there. And I would say audio, we're still um, investing into audio. I have many more questions for it, but we're gonna leave it here. Meredith, thank you for your time. Peter, it was nice to see you and thanks to everybody here uh, for listening to us and being Thanks interested. everyone. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Meredith Gopit-Levian. Thanks again to Digital Content Next for setting that conversation up. Thanks to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing the show. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. There's still no paywall around this show. Still the case. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks for your commentary. I always love hearing it. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.